0: please open in your scriptures to the Gospel of John. As you all know, we have four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of the Gospels speak of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ from a particular perspective. And although they all tell the same story, they tell the story from a different perspective. For example, the Gospel of Matthew, which we just read from, speaks of Christ as the Jewish Messiah. It's It's written to a primarily Jewish audience, and so it speaks of those aspects of the life and ministry of Christ which are of particular interest to a Jewish audience. That's not to say that it's not of importance to us, but it's designed to explain to a Jewish people who the Jewish Messiah is. Now, the Gospel of John speaks about Jesus Christ as God, God God-man, the God who became a man on our behalf. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you see very clearly not only the claims of Christ, of being God, but then the proofs that he is God as well. And this morning we're going to take a look at the 18th chapter of John. And in the chapter 18 along with the chapters before and a bit after, we see the last week of the ministry of and life of jesus christ what we refer to as passion week now if you were a jewish person you would know that this was the week the sunday that would lead into the passover it was a celebration the jewish celebration of the jewish passover a ceremonial holiday celebration that took them all the way back to the book of exodus when they left egypt and God provided for them the Passover. The entrance of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, as we just read, was met with a surge of people just singing and celebrating, advocates of the Christ who would walk, well, actually ride in and be celebrated. You see, the people were very excited because finally the Messiah had come. And of course... The disciples who are scratching their head and wondering, who is this Christ and why is he here? Now, all of a sudden, they're bolstered in their own faith. They say, wow, look at the reaction. Thousands of people lining up, taking their cloaks off. As we just read in Matthew, most of them took their cloaks off and made, if you will, a red carpet for the Christ who rode in on a donkey. Others cut off palms from trees, and and made a path for the Christ. Uh, These people were certainly excited. And they sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Adults and children, yelling this together. Can you imagine for yourself? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can imagine the excitement. Every 4th of July when we go out to see fireworks there's a particular excitement in the air right most people are very quiet until the fireworks are shot up and then suddenly there is an excitement as everybody says ooh ah. and, and there's a unity among us we're Americans and we are celebrating our liberty well so was it here they were saying we are the people of israel And we are celebrating the one who will come and liberate us. Hosanna. To them, Jesus Christ was like our George Washington, the leader of a revolution that would bring freedom from the Romans. Most people in that crowd did not understand who Christ was per se. They did not quite understand why Christ had come. From their perspective, he was the liberator from the Roman Empire. When in reality, Christ had said again and again, I have come to liberate you from judgment, from sin, not from Rome. Hosanna was an expression of adoration. It was a declaration that they saw Christ as the one who would relieve them from their bondage. And so when Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem on that Sunday, the first day of the week, the population was ecstatic, and the numbers were great. Josephus, who was a a historian back in ancient times, writes about one Passover week in which there was about 256,000 lambs waiting to be purchased and then executed for Passover. Did you get that? 256,000 lambs waiting to be purchased and executed for Passover. Now, all of Israel would come to Jerusalem for Passover. So you can imagine how many people were there. And if you consider 256,500 lambs uh, per household, and let's suggest that each household had four people, We're talking significant numbers, well over a million people gathering in Jerusalem. It's almost as if the walls were going to collapse. That's how crowded it was. The Romans, of course, were a bit nervous. They would be every Passover because they knew that once all the Jewish people came together, there was the opportunity here for a revolt, for a rebellion. And so the Jewish people were very careful and very attentive. And thus the governor was there. The governor was not always in Jerusalem, but he did come during this time of the year to make sure that everything stayed calm, everybody stayed cool, and there was no there would be no revolt or rebellion. Little did the people know that by the end of the week, all these people that were cheering and hooraying Christ, little did they realize that by the end of the week, Jesus Christ would be hanging on a cross, dying, and then. This morning, what I want you to do is to look at Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 28. And together, I want to see the condition of the heart of these people who put them on a cross. I want you to see the heart of the people involved in the arrest and interrogation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see how dangerous the human heart is. The human heart is very, very dangerous. So let me read to you beginning at verse 28, and I'll read just down to 32, and then we'll break it down, unpack it. I think you'll be surprised to see the depth of the depravity in the human heart. It reads this way. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover underscore that in your mind they did not enter the governor's house because they did not want to be defiled because they wanted to celebrate Passover verse 29 so Pilate went outside to them and said what accusation do you bring against this man they answered him if this man were not doing evil we would not have delivered him over to you and Pilate said to them take him yourselves and judge him by your own law The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So here we see how dangerous the heart is. In fact, the unchanged heart cannot be trusted. It cannot be trusted. We see there in verse 28, that the very people who had arrested Christ and now were ready to present him to the governor, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, they ignored their own heart. Now keep in mind that many of these people were religious leaders in that community. They were priests, they were Pharisees, they were Sadducees. They were very much concerned with <coughs> external purity. They were very much concerned with what they looked like. We look pious, we look righteous, therefore we must be righteous, And they were very concerned about their external purity. They they wanted to be able to celebrate Passover, which would be at the end of the week. And yes, they did have a very external, very outward piety. If you saw any of these guys, you would say, well, there is a religious righteous person. They looked it, they smelled it, they act like it. Most people would agree. However, notice here how they ignore their inner condition. Externally, they look great. Internally, well, not so good at all. And they were more than willing to ignore their heart. They forgot that Christ had instructed earlier on in chapter 4 of John that acceptable worship is this, worship that is done in what? In spirit and in truth. That's acceptable worship, spirit and in truth. Not in ceremony and external appearance. That's all they were giving. It was all outward. It was all form. It was external appearance, not in spirit or in truth. Now, notice here what I find just extraordinary. Extraordinary that they are looking to keep themselves pure so that they could celebrate Passover even while they're contemplating murder. They believe that they were justifiably pure before God externally, so much so that they could not see their own human condition They could not see their own sinfulness, the depravity of their own souls. They were so convinced that, look, I'm doing really good before God, that they could not see their own sin. They were unable to perceive the depth of their sinful condition. In fact, they were believing that they were worthy of God. They had convinced themselves that they were relatively good. I'm better than you, therefore I must be okay. I mention this not only because it's in the text, but do we see ourselves there too? I'm relatively good. I'm better than you. And if I'm not better than you, I can mention a lot of other people I'm better. I I, I am more pious than they. We do this consciously or subconsciously all the time. Lord, I'm a sinner, but I'm not them. That's exactly what these men are doing, even as they are contemplating murder. They still say, well, I am relatively good. Here is the deception of the human heart. These men were so deceived by their heart. The heart is so deceitful that it convinced them that what was in their hearts did not matter. They were convinced that what was in their hearts, they were looking to murder Jesus. They were convinced that it didn't matter. That's how deceitful the heart is. Not not only does the deceitful heart make us focus on externals, but the human heart is also quick to defend itself. Have you ever noticed that? Certainly if you have children, you've noticed that. But have you noticed that about yourself? I have about myself. How quick I am to defend myself. Because I want to hide my heart, even from myself. Notice what they do here, verses 29 and 30. The heart is ready to defend itself. So, Governor Pontius Pilate comes out of the praetorium in self-defense. The Jewish people refuse to come in because of their ceremonial purity laws. So, the governor very kindly comes out and says, what's going on? He says... What charges are you bringing against this man? But you can read his attitude. He comes out as if saying, Why in the world are you here bothering me? I have my own schemes. I have my own plans. I have my own things to do. And you are not helping. In fact, you're getting in the way. Don't bother me with what you're doing. If you read on in that same chapter... You see that Pilate is rather cynical. He's a man that has been searching for truth himself, but has been unable to find it because he trusts nobody. You would think Pilate was from New Jersey. (laughs) He defends himself. He says it's about me, it's about what I want. Don't bother. But the Jewish leaders do so even more so. They respond in self-defense. Look at what they say. If you were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, we have the right to have you listen to us. We have the right to your ears because here is a criminal against Rome. So listen, Pilate, don't question us. Don't second-guess us. We have rights, you know. They quickly defend their own hearts. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they quickly defend their own hearts. The sinful heart, my friends, reveals itself when it attempts to conceal itself. Now listen again, let me say it again. The sinful heart reveals itself when it tries to conceal itself. So beware of your own hearts. If we would simply watch what's in our own hearts, we would better understand ourselves. If we would simply watch what it is we try to conceal, we don't want anybody else to see, we would better understand our human heart condition. As Jesus Christ was said in Matthew twelve nineteen. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. (laughs) Whatever in your heart is going to push up into your throat and come out of your mouth. It is the heart that dictates what the tongue speaks, not the other way around. These men were simply digging inward with their tongues, down into their hearts, and pulling up the vial that resided in their hearts, the very core and substance of man. They were speaking what was in the center of their being. You'll notice here that sin cannot be traced to a limb that can be cut off. Sin cannot be traced to your feet or to your hands. No, sin is traced back to the very core of your being. It is traced back to the inner part of your soul, your your heart. And here we see that the unconverted heart, the unchanged heart, is deceitful. And listen, it cannot be trusted. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? The actions of these men, as they attempted to incarcerate Christ and have him executed, the actions of these men were that of men who did not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They certainly loved their own hearts. They certainly loved their own position. They certainly loved their scheming, but they did not love God. And yet their sinful hearts convinced them that they loved God. The heart is very dangerous and it defends itself. Notice here that they bring up no, no idea, no notion of their willingness to murder Christ. It's not mentioned. The, the idea of murder is not mentioned. Rather, what we see here is a willingness to think that they were pure. that They were not sinners. They defend their sinful actions. They believe that they were justified by not what was in their heart, but how they lived. It was all external. I know I'm being repetitious, but there's a reason. It was all external. What was in the heart, they did not care. It was what do we look like that mattered. Let me try to illustrate how deceitful the heart is by telling you the story of how in the past Eskimo hunters would kill a wolf. What the Eskimo hunter would do is take a knife, a very sharp knife, and Cover it with a layer of blood and let it freeze. And then he would take that same knife and put another layer of blood and let it freeze, and so on and so on and so on, until that knife, that very sharp knife, was completely covered in blood. And then he would stick that knife in the snow overnight. Of course, a wolf, being a wolf, would smell it from a distance, and eventually the wolf would find the bait. And he would lick the blood. And in licking the blood, he would lick some more and some more. And eventually he would lick very vigorously until suddenly all the blood is lapped away and all he has now is an exposed blade, a naked blade. And what the wolf would do in that arctic cold was lick and lick and lick, not realizing that the savory blood was his own. And eventually the wolf would bleed to death and die. That's the human heart. The unchanged heart is like that, this blood-covered knife. It appears to be reasonable, it appears to be good, but my friends, Jeremiah is right. It deceives you. And in time, it will take your life from you. And your soul will be a lifeless carcass. That's the human heart according to the scriptures. The unchanged heart is deceitful. It cannot be trusted. And what we see here in these brief verses is not only that the heart is immensely deceitful, but we also discover here that the heart is very dangerous and able to do anything, anything as well. There's no limit as to what sin in the unconverted heart will conceive take a look at verse 31 you see not only that the heart is dangerous rather deceitful but it is also dangerous it is able to do anything the heart of every human being desires truth would you agree we all want truth we don't want to be lied to one of the complaints we have today is of all the fake news we don't know what to believe we don't know what's true we don't know what's fake and we have one side pointing at the other and accusing the other of lying to us. And we all feel frustrated and uncomfortable and, of course, divided. We all want truth. We live by truth. Without truth, it is impossible to succeed. Instinctively, we want to be told the truth. In fact, there's no advantage whatsoever to be lied to. The only person who has an advantage is the liar. But the person being lied to is never going to gain and the reason we want truth is because we all bear the image of god although the image of god as human beings is marred in many ways shattered god is truth and therefore we want truth we have the image of god in us we demand truth because we are created in his image in fact i would say that we have this unquenchable thirst desire for truth especially when the truth pertains to the reality of God or to the purpose of man or to whether or not there's eternal life or to whether or not there's a purpose for a day-to-day existence. We want truth. Pilate desired truth. He's very leery, as we see here in these verses, of these priests, these religious people with this outward appearance. He's very leery of them. He says, I think you're lying to me. I think you're using me. And so he's standoffish. He wants truth. In fact, if you read on, verse 38, he says to Jesus Christ, after Christ says he is truth, he says, what is truth? Truth was standing right in front of him, and he could not see it. What is truth? He wanted truth. He refuses to be implicated in the lies of these priests. And so, verse 31, he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You go and judge him by your own law. Now, you see, the Jewish people, because they were occupied by the Roman government, the Jewish nation had the right to make uh, judgments, to, to go through the court process in civil matters. But they were not allowed to execute anybody. That would be be a Roman duty. So the Jewish people knew, well, we can't execute him. But that's exactly what they wanted to do. Thus, they went to Pontius Pilate. Verse 31, the second half, you see that the heart is capable of even murder. Without thinking, and without even being asked, look at what these priests say. Look, Look at what spills out of their hearts. The intention of their evil hearts is exposed. They want to murder Christ. And and, and Pontius Pilate says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And they respond, but we have no right to execute anyone. Who was talking about execution? You see, what was in their hearts came out. It came out. Their scheme is suddenly divulged. Nothing short of murdering this innocent man would satisfy them. Here, verse 28, they were worried whether or not they were ceremonially pure and able to celebrate Passover. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus Christ says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Keep that in mind. Start starts with thoughts, right? Come evil thoughts, and then get a load of this list. And murder, and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Now notice here that Jesus Christ did not speak of the lesser sins, about white lies, about cheating a little bit on your income taxes, about breaking copyright laws. He doesn't bring those things up, uh, but rather he speaks of the most grossest of sins, and he traces those back to the human heart. That's not to say that those lesser sins don't originate there either, or two, They do, but here Christ is making his point. He is speaking about how wretched and vicious the human heart is. And so he lays out these awful sins. But notice where these awful sins begin. It's quite a list, wouldn't you agree? But notice the first thing he says. These sins originate in thought, human thought. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. And then you have that list of wretched sins. Now nobody is going to imprison me because of my thoughts. At least not yet. But God is saying here, I will judge you for your thoughts. My friends, sin begins your thought life. God here is equating the treacherous sin of theft. Adultery. Murder and so on. With sinful thoughts. Sins that initiate in the heart. And then are formulated in the mind. And then are carried out by our hands and feet. Keep this in mind. This is something these religious priests needed to be reminded of and forgotten please let's not us let us not forget ourselves the sin is conceived when it is played out in your thoughts now we may all argue here that we are not murderers but would you agree that we have murdered people with our thoughts we may all say oh i'm not an adulterer but men in particular would you agree Committed adultery with your thoughts. You see, it begins in the heart, it's formed in the mind, and then it's carried out with our hands. God requires that we even learn to control our thoughts. And it's not something that we do naturally. It's something that is done supernaturally, meaning Christ in you. Christ in you. And the way we control our thoughts is not simply by thinking about what we're thinking, but rather desiring the things of God. When our hearts desire the things of God, we will naturally hate what does not belong to God, what does not pertain to God. When my heart, my inner being desires what is good, my thoughts will dwell on those things that are good and I will live out according to that good. But if my heart is not transformed, it will produce thoughts that will be sinful and will be carried out in actual sin. Sin is not just the result of a momentary lack of self-control. No, sin is the mental assembling of what's already in our hearts. And if the heart is corrupt, causing thoughts to be corrupt, then I must be corrupt. The sinful heart resulted at birth, my friends. Please don't think that somehow because of the environment these people became corrupt. Certainly our environment does not help us. Certainly TV and social media does not help by and large, there's exceptions, uh, to this corruption of the heart. But it did not happen to us. We were born that way. At birth, we're born with a corrupt heart, with a depraved soul. If you take a look at the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the beginning of history, it reads this way, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's modern day. New Jersey, USA, it was also the beginning of history. We're all born with this corrupt heart, and that's why Jesus Christ came. And that's why Jesus Christ died. I find it amazing that even as they were contemplating a way by which they could get rid of Christ by crucifying him, they played right into the plan of God. There's a theological term for that. perichoresis. Some of you know what I'm talking about. God interwoven in the choices of man And in the actions of man. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that we are corrupt. It reads, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the psalmist writes, surely I was sinful when? At birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And as part of Adam's fallen race, each of us share in this corruption. It stems from that stems from this very essence of our being, from the very heart of our being. We are each sinners among sinners, and that's why Christ came. And we can be freed from our sin. We can certainly be quickly freed from the penalty of our sins through Jesus Christ. And our sinfulness is evident. You know what I find interesting? That when I'm on the Internet, which is quite often, I could find articles on any, any, any subject. It's amazing, isn't it? With just a click, I could download whatever information I want, whether it's on technology, or mechanics, or health, or poetry, or history, or consumer reports. With just a little click, I could read about housekeeping, I could read about purchasing a car, I could read about religion. Anything I want. And we all have our interests. And we Google whatever we want, and there it is for us. And sometimes we just glean the information. Sometimes we enjoy the information. But you notice what I don't find on the internet. I don't find articles explaining to me how to sin. I don't need to look up how to commit adultery. I don't need to look up how to steal. I don't need to look up how to lie. I don't need to Google that. You know why? It comes very naturally. And do you know why it comes very naturally? Because it's in my heart. We are broken sinners, depraved, wretched sinners. That's why Christ comes. That's why Christ comes to save us. I do not think that any of us should ever consider ourselves immune from the plague of a sinful heart. If you consider yourself immune to the sinful heart, understand then you are being just like these religious priests in John chapter 18. They thought they were immune, and so they ignored their heart. They believed they were good enough because externally they sure did look good enough. Well, my friends, let me wrap this up by saying that this morning I've been trying to not only expose who these people were that were attempting to crucify Christ and eventually succeed. I'm not just trying to expose them, but I want you to see how much like them we are. How much like them you are. Yes, what they did was vicious. No question about it. What they did is simply because they followed the dictates of their deceitful and corrupt hearts. They did what came naturally from the core of their being. That's all they were doing. Very natural. It's not that they were more sinful than the rest of us. They are just as sinful, or we are just as sinful as they. They are not more immoral or more wicked than anyone else. They simply possessed in their soul the same heart that every one of us is born with. And we know it. Because we've seen what comes out of our mouths. Because we've seen what our thoughts formulate. We have seen for ourselves what we are willing and able to do. And sometimes we shock ourselves and we say, Me? I'm able to do that? I'm willing to do that? That's the human heart. It's not deniable. Unless, of course, you would trust your deceitful hearts. The remedy for this contaminated heart is not good deeds. You know, a lot of people think along those lines that if my heart is so contaminated, what I need to do is is do a lot of good things, a lot of good things, so that eventually my good will outweigh the bad. But here's the problem. Whenever your good deeds are run through your sinful heart, your good deeds become sinful too. And that's why the prophet Isaiah says that all our good deeds are like, are like filthy rags. <laughs> who wants, who needs a filthy rag? The answer is not good deeds. The answer is not religion. Religion is simply man trying to find God. When in reality, at the cross, Jesus Christ finds you. What you need to do is turn to Christ. He's already found you. Search no more. The remedy for your contaminated heart is faith in Jesus Christ that leads to repentance. As one writer put it, he says, put away the hounds of your soul and turn to Christ. In faithful trust, with repentance over your sins, give your life to Christ. And let him transform your heart. Let him change who you are. Let him change your desires, so that your thoughts would be changed, so that your actions would change as well. Yes, he will forgive your sins. Which sins? All your sins. Big and small. And he will separate you from your sin, As far as the east is from the west, the two never meet. That's what the Bible says. And he will give you a new heart in which will reside not the pollution of sin, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thus, we read in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians 5 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And Christ calls you to give your life to him so that you can participate in being that new creation. And allow your heart to change so that it will not have to perpetually be deceitful. So that you can trust your heart when you desire the things Pray with me. Our Father and Savior, our Christ, our Redeemer, our Holy Spirit, our Convictor, we pray, O Lord, that our hearts would each here be so redeemed, so transformed, that our desires would be your desires, that our thoughts would be in accord with your plans and your precepts, that, Lord, we would not be counted among those who hated you and yet thought we were okay or good enough, but our our, our lives, our inner hearts would prove otherwise. We pray, O Lord, that you would so call each one of us to you and so transform us that we would know the delight and pleasure of Christ as the Redeemer, the Savior, who has come not only for this world, but for me in particular, for each one of us individually, that we would know the joy of our salvation in you. We pray this in your good name, Jesus Christ.